Lord, your word, all of it is true and all of it is important and all of it has practical relevance for our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that as we take a look at this paragraph in this big book, that, Lord, you'd show us how it fits, what it means to us today, and that, Lord, you'd help us to fix our minds and our hearts and our souls on the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So give us grace to understand, Lord, what your word says, that it would minister powerfully to us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's begin reading then at Romans 15, verse 7. Therefore accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. I will sing to your name. Again he says, rejoice O Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord all you Gentiles and let the peoples praise him. Again Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now folks, when we come to verse 13, there is a sense in which we have finished the book of Romans. And what I mean by that is, Paul's teaching comes to an end at verse 13. His letter doesn't come to an end, He's going to continue on writing until chapter 16, verse 27. But the rest of the letter is biographical and it's personal in nature. The main body of doctrine that he wanted to impart to the Romans will end when he gets to verse 13. Now, when we come to Romans 15, 7, we're coming to the very end of his discussion, which he starts in chapter 14, verse 1. And in that whole, whole section from 14.1 to 15.7, he's trying to help the church learn how to dwell in peace in spite of the different convictions that they all share. Do you remember we talked about those who are weak in faith and those who are strong in faith? How the weak in faith had certain scruples and convictions about, well, I, I can't eat meat, you shouldn't drink wine, you need to observe Saturday as the Sabbath day, and so they have these convictions and then they've got other people in the church that don't share those convictions. They feel totally free to eat meat or drink wine or not set Saturday apart as a special day, but to worship every day alike. So you've got these two groups going head to head within the church at Rome. I think the main problem there was that you had Jews and Gentiles trying to exist together in one body, in one church, and the Jews have rules about not eating certain kinds of meat. Uh, the Jews have rules about observing the seventh or the seventh day of the week, not the first day, the seventh day of the week as the Sabbath day where they do nothing but rest and they assemble to worship God. So if you have Jews that have become Christians, a, a lot of that's going to be carried over with them. And they're going to still hold on to those convictions. But you've got Gentiles coming into the church and they don't have any of those convictions. And now they're all in one church trying to get along and the Jews are saying, no, you've got to observe Saturday as a Sabbath day. And the Gentiles are saying, why? 
And the Jews are saying, you can't eat pork. And the Gentiles are saying, why not? And you have these various convictions happening. So Paul tries to give them the bottom line answer to, those, to the problem of this disunity and this unrest within the church. And he gives it to them in verse 7. Therefore accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us, to the glory of God. Now, who did Christ accept? Verse 7. Christ also accepted us. Well, this us contains both Jews and Gentiles. The us contains weak in faith and strong in faith. It contains all believers, all believing Jews, all believing Gentiles. The weak and the strong. And so he says that we must do the same thing. Christ is our example. We are to accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Jesus accepted all of us and so he says you need to do just like he did. Follow his example. Follow in his path and his steps. Now notice that Jesus accepted us to the glory of God. When Jesus accepted Jews, he did that to the glory of God. And when Jesus accepted Gentiles, he did that to the glory of God. And that's going to come out as we read through and study this passage. We're going to see what, how Jesus glorified God when he accepted the, the Jews, and then how he glorified God when he accepted the Gentiles. Now, one quick side note here. He tells us to accept one another, just as Christ did, to the glory of God. But accepting one another doesn't necessarily mean that you need to agree with that person on secondary issues. He doesn't say to accept that person's convictions. He says accept them. Which means to warmly invite them into fellowship with you. Don't erect barriers between you and that other Christian so that you don't accept them or don't fellowship with them. No, we are to accept one another to the glory of God just as Christ accepted us to the glory of God. Okay? So if your brother has a conviction that no, no Christian should ever um, drink wine with their dinner and you don't share that conviction, Paul's not telling you that you have to change your mind to conform to everybody else's opinion in the church. He's saying that you need to accept that person into your life, accept them as a believer, and then share the things in Christ that you have in common with them. Don't exclude them because they have a different conviction than you do. Okay, Christ accepted us to the glory of God. Verse 7 is the thesis statement for, for verses 7 to 13. Now, if you ever take, took an English class, you find out that the thesis statement is usually the first word of your paragraph. Everything else in that paragraph relates back to the first sentence. The first sentence sums up everything else that's going to happen in that paragraph. Okay, I took an English class, I don't know, 20 years ago, just for the fun of it. I wanted to learn how to write better. And these are the things they taught us. Verse 7 is the thesis statement for verses 7 to 13. Because verse 7 is like the acorn, and 8 to 13 is like the tree that grows out of the acorn of verse 7. Verse 7 sums up everything Paul is going to say in this, this paragraph. It's the summation of it. And notice in verse 8, he begins with the word for. 
And then whenever you find the word for, you know that he is going to go on to explain what he has just told you in the previous verse or verses. So what he told us in the previous verse is that we are to accept one another just as Christ has accepted us to the glory of God. And here comes that explanation. Well, what do you mean Christ accepted us to the glory of God? What's that all about? What are you talking about? So verses 8 to 13 are the unwrapping or the unpacking or the explanation of what Jesus did to accept us to the glory of God. So in verse 8, Paul tells us how Christ accepted the Jews to the glory of God. Verses 9 to 12, this is how Christ accepted the Gentiles to the glory of God. And then verse 13 is a concluding prayer for both Jews and Gentiles that they would abound in hope, which is the dominant thought that is laced throughout this paragraph, our hope in Jesus. So let's take a look at how Jesus accepted the Jews to the glory of God. He says in verse 8, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. Now verse 7, Christ accepted the Jews to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant, the way he accepted the Jews to the glory of God was becoming a servant to the circumcision, which is another way of talking about Jews. They're the ones who were circumcised. The way Jesus accepted the Jews is by becoming a servant to the Jews on behalf of God's truth. And here's the reason why. To confirm the promises given to the fathers. Now let's unpack all of that. When he talks about the fathers, he's talking about the patriarchs of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And it would probably by extension include people like uh, King David and Isaiah the prophet. And we know that because he's going to quote them in just a few minutes. So the fathers are the patriarchs, the fathers of Israel. Certain promises were given to those patriarchs. And in order for Christ to accept the Jews, he's got to confirm to the Jews that he is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises that were given to the patriarchs. I mean, th think through this with me. If you were a Jew, and you were presented with the claims of Christ, you're not going to believe on Jesus, and you're not going to trust Him for your salvation, unless you really, honestly believe that He is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament promises of the Messiah that was to come. A Jew was born and raised learning the Messianic promises of the Old Testament Scripture. And he had to become convinced that Jesus was the fulfillment of all those promises prophecies and promises given to the patriarchs. And so what does Jesus do? He wants to accept them into fellowship with himself and so he comes and confirms those promises to the Jews so that they can understand and tell that oh Jesus did fulfill those promises. I can put my trust in him. I can bank my soul on him because he did fulfill all of the promises made to the fathers. Okay, so what kind of promises was Paul talking about here that Jesus confirmed to the Jews? Well, he doesn't give us a specific list of them, but I, I feel fairly sure that I'm going to give you some of the promises of the Old Testament. I think I'm fairly certain that these would be representative of the kinds of promises that Paul was thinking about. The very first messianic promise in the Bible is all the way back in the book of Genesis. Chapter 3, and you know the verse probably, verse 15, 
Genesis 3.15, where God tells the serpent, I will put enmity, that means hostility, I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He, that is the seed of the woman, he is going to bruise you on the head, and you serpent, you shall bruise him on the heel. Okay, so we have the serpent, and the seed, or the descendants of the serpent, that would be the Satan and all those who follow him. And then you've got the woman and her seed. Now he might have been talking about Eve as the woman here. And the descendants that followed her. I, I think you could also make a case that as the seed of the woman, that might have been talking about the Virgin Mary and her seed giving birth to Jesus Christ. But so you've got Christ and Satan in this hostile engagement. And he says two things are going to happen. The serpent is going to bruise the seed of the woman on the heel and the seed of the woman is going to bruise the serpent on the head. Now that word bruise can also be translated as crush. In fact the NIV puts it this way. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He, the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, is going to crush your head, serpent, and you will strike his heel. So, the serpent, representative of Satan, is going to deal a temporary, painful blow or wound to Jesus Christ, which did take place when he was nailed to a cross, suffered and died. But in that process of being nailed to a cross, Jesus Christ is going to crush the head of the serpent. Now, when I was growing up, we had relatives in the state of Washington, and we would drive up every summer and would visit with them. And we loved to go out, and they have woods everywhere, and we'd catch gardener snakes all the time. And kids, being what they are, we would do bad things to these snakes. And sometimes we'd cut, cut them in two. We'd cut their tails off. And the interesting thing is, these snakes didn't die. They just grow another tail. So if, if the seed of the woman had just crushed the tail of the serpent, no big deal. The only way to really destroy a snake is to crush the head. And that's what Jesus Christ did. He destroyed Satan and his works. He broke his back at the cross. He put him out of business. Now he's still around and he's still doing as much mischief as he can. But for all intents and purposes, Jesus Christ has dealt a death blow to Satan. He's broke his back. So there's the very first promise and Jesus Christ confirmed to the Jews, I am the fulfillment of that promise. I am the seed of the woman who was to come. And we know that because all of the New Testament apostles and prophets who wrote scripture tell us that very thing. Colossians 2 tells us that he disarmed the rulers and powers. Uh, in 1 John 3 it says that he destroyed the works of the devil. So he fulfills Genesis 3.15. Let's take another one. Genesis 22.18. Here was a promise made to Abraham. And this was when Abraham had offered up Isaac in obedience to God. And God told him to spare his son. He took the knife to plunge it in the heart of his son. And God said, no, don't do it. After that was all over, God said, In your seed, Abraham, in your seed, in your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now interestingly, that word seed can be taken for a number of descendants, but it can also be taken as a singular person. 
And in Galatians, that's, Paul makes a big deal about that. He doesn't say seeds, he says seed. Now, how does the Apostle Peter interpret Genesis 22-18 when he's preaching to a vast crowd of people at the temple grounds after a man has been healed, he quotes this verse and he interprets what it actually means. So let's go over and let's see how the Apostle Peter interprets it. <clears throat> this is Acts 3.25. Okay, Peter says, It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant. And in the context here, his servant is speaking about Jesus Christ. So he's applying Genesis 22:18 in verse 26 of Acts 3 and he says for you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Now in verse 25 he says that the servant Jesus Christ is going to bless all the families of the earth. Well how does he bless them? Verse 26 he turns every one of them from their wicked ways. In you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. How? Jesus Christ will turn those people from all the nations of the world. He'll turn them from their wicked ways back to God to be reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They will leave their wicked ways behind and they will find a whole new life in Jesus Christ. So Jesus himself, according to the Apostle Peter, is the fulfillment of Genesis 22:18. And it was all the nations of the world that were promised uh, to be blessed in the Messiah. And that's why when we read in Revelation 5.9, it says that he's worthy to take the book and to break its seals because he purchased with his own blood men from every tribe and people and nation and tongue and made them to be a kingdom of priests. So, when we finally get to heaven, we're going to, Notice that there are specimens, there are people out of every tribe of the world, every people group of the world that have been redeemed and purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. So Jesus confirms to the Jews, I am the fulfillment of Genesis 22:18. It was in me that all the families of the world would be blessed. Let's take a third one, another promise, Deuteronomy 18 verses 18 and 19. God is speaking to Moses and says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. In other words, you'd better heed the words of this prophet that I'm going to send you, because if you don't, I'm going to require it of you. Now what's he talking about? Well, in the very same sermon, in Acts chapter 3, Peter quotes this verse too. And he tells us what it means. So he quotes it in Acts chapter 3, verse 22. And in his sermon, he said, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Now, of course, Peter is 
explaining to them about Jesus Christ, and he quotes this verse to help them understand that this was a prophecy, a promise that God had given the fathers. Jesus came into the world to become that prophet. Do you remember when the religious leaders came to um, John the Baptist, and they said, are you that prophet? Well, they're referring to this prophecy. The prophecy that God would send, this great prophet that would speak the very words of God and all men were required to give heed to what he said. Well, the prophet is Jesus. He's not only a king, he's not only a priest, Jesus came as a prophet because he spoke the very words of God to God's people. Let's take another one. Isaiah 7.14, and you all know this one very well. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign... Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And then in Matthew 1, 21-23, the angel Gabriel comes to Joseph, and he, he gives a similar prophecy, and he says to him that you will call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. So, God's going to give a sign. A virgin is going to have a child and bear a son. I dare say there is no one else in the history of the world who ever gave birth to a son being a virgin other than Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ. So of course Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And they will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Well the name Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. Jesus himself is Jehovah who brings salvation to his people. So Emmanuel fits. He's God with us. God coming from heaven to earth to dwell amongst men to save them from sin. And let me just give you one more. This is our great Christmas text from Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Well, of course, there we have another promise that God is going to send a child, a son, into the world who would become this mighty, magnificent personage who would have the titles like wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. And no one else in history fits those descriptions other than the son of God, Jesus Christ. So, back to Romans 15. The way Jesus would accept the Jews is by serving them. And the way he's going to serve them is by confirming the promises given to the fathers, the patriarchs of Israel, which he did. He came into the world and fulfilled those messianic promises. So there's no reason why a Jew would have, should have any doubt believing that Jesus is the Messiah. There should be no doubt because the promises that he fulfilled were so clear and real and true that Doubt is dispelled. So he accepts the Jews, and notice he accepts the Jews to the glory of God. He accepts the Jews to the glory of God's truthfulness. Because verse 8 says, I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God. 
When Jesus confirmed the promises given to the fathers, he glorified God's truthfulness. In other words, God can be trusted. God made promises that he brought to pass. He fulfilled the promises he made. Therefore, he, Jesus glorified God's truthfulness, his veracity, his faithfulness to his word and his promises. There's no reason any of us can, should ever doubt when God makes a promise, we can trust that promise. He's demonstrated that he's worthy of trust. Okay? So, Jesus accepted the Jews. How? He became a servant to them. How did he serve them? He confirmed the promises given to the patriarchs in the Old Testament. And he did all of that to glorify God's truthfulness so that we would have reason to trust him forever. And any promise that he's made. And he's made plenty of promises to us that we can bank our souls on. We'll talk about a few of those later. Okay, number two. How did Jesus Christ accept the Gentiles? Well, similarly, he became a servant to the Gentiles. What, he, what did he do in serving the Gentiles? Well, it says in verse 9, not only did he do this for the circumcision, but and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. So, Jesus became a servant to the Jews to confirm the promises given to the Father to glorify God's truthfulness Jesus became a servant to the Gentiles to bestow saving mercy upon them so that they would glorify God's mercy truthfulness to Jews mercy for Gentiles and in order to buttress support for what he's just said in verse 9 about bestowing mercy upon the Gentiles Paul is going to list four different Old Testament texts that tell us that that was prophesied way back in the Old Testament this isn't something some newfangled doctrine this is something that God had been saying many times throughout the Old Testament there was a day coming when God is going to include the Gentiles with the Jews and make them one body in Christ and so he quotes four texts. The first one is 2 Samuel 22.50. Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. Now, 2 Samuel 22.50 is a song of David. It's a song that David composed himself. And David said, hey, I'm going to give praise to God among the Gentiles, which was a crazy idea because back in the Old Testament you didn't have a bunch of Gentiles hanging around the Jews giving praise to God Th this was something that was he, he, being foreshadowed in the future so David pictures a day in which the Jews and the Gentiles are going to lift up their voices together as one and give praise to God and sing to his name and so if the Gentiles are singing God's praises along with the Jews then that must mean that the Gentiles have received mercy along with the Jews. And they're all believing in and praising the same God, Jehovah, Creator. So that's what we learn from this first text. The second one, verse 10, is Deuteronomy 32:43. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Here we have again. Gentiles are rejoicing with the people of God, the Jewish people. So we've got Gentiles and Jews together. Not, in this text, they're not praising God and singing to Him. What they're doing here is rejoicing together 
in the same God. Yahweh, Jehovah God, Creator. And then the third text is verse 11, Psalm 117, verse 1. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise Him. Again, he quotes an Old Testament text which pictures the Gentiles praising the God of Israel. Let all the peoples, not just the Jews, let all the peoples praise Him. And then finally, verse 12, he quotes Isaiah 11.10. There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Okay, so the Messiah was not only going to be the son of David, but the root of Jesse. Now, many times in the Gospels, Jesus is called the son of David. Son of David, have mercy on me, right? But here he's called the root of Jesse. Now, Jesse was David's father. The root would be the source of Jesse. So David's father's source is the one who is going to be coming into the world to rule over the Gentiles as king. So not only is Jesus the son of David or the descendant of David, he is the source over David's father. He's not only the son of David, he's the Lord of David. He's not only son of man, he's son of God. You see the point there? So, and again, in every one of these texts, he mentions nations or Gentiles because his point is that God is going to have mercy on the Gentiles. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. That's how Christ accepted them. He served them by bestowing saving mercy upon these Gentiles, bringing them into his body, his church, and making Jew and Gentile come together to become one body. And that's why there's so many problems in the church, because you've got Jews and Gentiles trying to serve the Lord together with all these various convictions. But it's part of God's plan. From hundreds of years prior, God had made these promises and prophecies that this was going to happen. And that's Paul's point here. So what do we learn about these Gentiles that are among the Jews in these four Old Testament texts? We learn that they're praising the Lord, they're rejoicing in the Lord, they're being ruled by the Lord, and they're hoping in the Lord. Because the end of verse 12 says, In Him, this coming one, the Lord Jesus Christ, in Him shall the Gentiles hope. Now what I want you to see is that there is a dominant thought or a central idea that weaves its way through this entire paragraph. And it's not obviously apparent, but the word hope keeps surfacing over and over throughout the passage. And it actually comes up even before the paragraph. It comes up in verse 4, where Paul says, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance, and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So the purpose of the encouragement of the scriptures is to give God's people hope. The scriptures give hope. Which is why Paul takes the time to list four different Old Testament scriptures. Because these scriptures lead us to having hope. And that's why at the end of verse 12... He says, in him shall the Gentiles hope. And that's why he says in verse 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. He wants to really drive home the point that there is hope in Jesus Christ.
The scriptures lead us to hope. So he quotes four different passages of scripture to build hope. Then he says, in him the Gentiles will hope. And then he gives a prayer for them that they will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So my question then is, what is hope? What is biblical hope? What did Paul mean when he talked about hope? And we use the word hope differently than the Bible writers did. We can say, I hope one day I'll have a little girl. Well, for me, that's wishful thinking, right? <laughs> that's not going to happen. I'm not going to have a little girl. You have a granddaughter. Be <laughs> <laughs> or, or you can say, I, I hope I win the lottery and become a millionaire. Well, that's wishful thinking. Biblical hope, as we saw in Hebrews 6 this morning, our opening scripture, is sure and steadfast. It's an anchor of the soul. It's not something that's wishy-washy. Maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. No, biblical hope is a sure, confident expectation of what God has promised to do. The blessings that he's going to bring into the believer's life. That's our hope. It's not something that may happen or may not happen. It will happen, and it's, it's a future-looking expectation of what God is going to do. So let's take a look at what Paul has already told us in the book of Romans, is the believer's hope. And he tells us three things here in, in the book of Romans. The first one he tells us back in chapter 5, verse 2. He says there, through whom, through Christ also, we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. There's the first one. We exult in hope of the glory of God. The word exult means to rejoice greatly. So we have this great rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. Now what does he mean by that? The glory of God. I'll tell you what I believe he means. I believe, he says, we greatly rejoice at this future expectation that we are going to experience and see and savor and enjoy God and all of His excellencies, His, His glory, His attributes put on display. We see them in a mirror dimly in this lifetime. Yeah, we get some of it. But there's coming a, a greater understanding and experiential reality for the people of God when we're with him and we see him as he is and we see his beauty and his perfections and in an ever-increasing measure throughout eternity we get to know the wonder and the beauty of our creator and our redeemer so I, I believe that's what he means when he says we rejoice greatly in this future expectation that God is going to reveal to us and let us experience and taste and enjoy Him. He is our reward. He is our treasure. And we're going to enjoy His glory as He reveals that glory to us. So we exult in the hope of the glory of God. If you turn over to chapter 8, there's another hope that the believer has. Look at 19 to 21. Uh, Romans chapter 8. 19 to 21. He says, the, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, 
but because of him who subjected it, and here's our word, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now what in the world is Paul talking about there? What is the hope that he's mentioning in verses 20 and 21? Do you see it? It's a hope that the present creation is going to be set free. Right now there's corruption that is set in to the present creation. Plants get sick and die. Animals get sick and die. We have earthquakes, tsunamis, tornadoes, wildfires, these natural, these disasters that, that, uh, that devastate our present world. And he's saying, we have a hope that this present creation is going to be set free from its slavery to corruption because of the fall of man, the world is not the way God originally created it. It has fallen with man and it's corrupted. But there's coming a day when it's going to be set free into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Folks, when we are set free from our corruption, the creation also is going to be remade. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So not only do we have this hope of a person the glory of God that we're going to experience. We also have the hope of a place, this new earth, in which there's not going to be any sickness or suffering or crying or pain or death. And it's not going to be corrupted. It's going to be set free from corruption into a beautiful paradise-like place where we will enjoy the presence of God and serving Him and, I believe, fellowshipping with each other Rejoicing with each other, giving God glory for all of the good things that we experience. And again, this is something that we really, we really can't put our finger on. Because we've never known anything but a corrupt world that we've lived in. What will an uncorrupted world be like? A world set free from corruption. It's hard to imagine it, but we know it, it's got to be wonderful, right? So this is the believer's hope. The new earth, the new heavens in which righteousness dwells. And then he has one more, and that's verses 23 and 24. And not only this, not only is the creation going to be set free from corruption, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? The hope that he's mentioning here in verse 24 is the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. The adoption of sons. And we say, well, wait a minute, I thought we were already adopted as sons. That's true. <laughs> there is a sense in which we have already been adopted. Ephesians 1 tells us that. We have been adopted into God's family. But there is a full, final, completed sense in which we will be uh, fully adopted. There is the already and the not yet. So we already have been adopted, but there is the not yet. There's the future final climax of this adoption that we will experience. And he says what that is. It's the redemption of your body. So you've been redeemed, but your body's not redeemed. Your body will be redeemed 
when the heavens, new heavens and the new earth come to pass, when Jesus Christ returns and he raises this body to be like his own glorious body, then this body will be redeemed. So what is our hope? It's the glory of God. It's a new earth. And it's a redeemed body. So this is a body that doesn't sin. This is a body that's not even tempted to sin. Because Satan's not there. He's the tempter. He's gone. So it's a world in which there's no temptation and there's no sin. And there's no bodily corruption like suffering and sickness. There's no death. It's, it's a beautiful world and a beautiful body. A redeemed body joined to a redeemed soul to live forever with the glory of God and a new heavens and a new earth. Wow. That's the hope of the Christian according to Paul in the book of Romans. So what do we hope for? A greater experience of the glory of God dwelling in a new world set free from all corruption and a body that no longer is tempted or sins against God but just does righteousness all the time. Now he concludes here in Romans 15 12 and he says in him shall the Gentiles hope. The Gentiles that have come to know Jesus Christ and have been saved by his grace and his mercy has been poured out upon them they find themselves hoping just like the Jews did. The Gentiles now hope right alongside Jews and they hope for the things that we've just talked about in Romans chapter 5. Now let's come to the very final verse, verse 13, because in here Paul takes time to pray for his readers who are both Jews and Gentiles. He concludes with this prayer and he's expounded on the hope of the Gentiles. Now he's going to pray that this hope becomes a reality in their life. Now may the God of hope, let's just stop there. He could have called him the God of peace or the God of glory or the God of love. But he very specifically refers to him as the God of hope because he's wanting to pray now that the God who possesses hope will impart that hope to these Jews and Gentiles. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing. So what we learn here is first of all hope comes from God. Hope doesn't come from within us. God imparts this hope. He's the God of hope. He's the one that grants this hope to his people. And secondly, we learn that hope is accompanied by joy and peace. Because may the God of hope fill you with all joy and all peace in believing. Joy and peace take place in the heart of the Christian as he believes. So they come through faith. And we know that joy and peace are fruits of the Holy Spirit, don't we? From Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. So when the Christian believes and puts his faith in Christ, he starts to experience joy and peace. The fruits of the Holy Spirit that now dwell within him. And then hope is a result of these fruits that are being manifest in his life. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that 
you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think what Paul is saying is that as we experience the fruits of the Spirit in our life more and more, our hope increases. Or you could say it this way, your assurance, your assurance of salvation increases as the fruits of the Holy Spirit increase in your life. You see the Holy Spirit working in you and giving you these things that you don't naturally possess, like love, joy, and peace. And they're starting to abound in your life. And that causes you to have this greater hope and expectation that all that God has promised for you will come to pass. And notice at the very end of this prayer that hope abounds by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we, we think of the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh yeah, we need that. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to heal the sick or to cast out demons or to raise the dead. But here Paul says we also need the power of the Holy Spirit just to have this hope. God gives us this hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Not only does he give the fruits of the Holy Spirit like joy and peace, but he gives hope, which is the power of the Holy Spirit producing that. And it comes, notice that, it, it, that we are to abound in it. He wants us to be filled with all joy and filled with all peace so that we will abound in hope. So the Christian life is not just to be some kind of a meager, have a, a little bit of hope and a little bit of joy and a, maybe a little bit of peace. The way Paul prays for them is he wants them to have all joy and all peace and he wants them to abound, meaning they're overflowing with this hope. This hope has so gripped them that it, it governs their life and they find themselves rejoicing and at peace in stressful circumstances because they have this hope that the Holy Spirit has birthed in them. Well, we've been talking about God's acceptance of Jews and acceptance of Gentiles to the glory of God. So which one are you? Are you a Jew or a Gentile? I don't think, we don't have any Jews in our church, do we? Or am I wrong here? Gentiles. So for all Gentiles? A real Jew has a circumcised heart, so. <laughs> are you talking about a spiritual Jew? So I, I guess we're all spiritual Jews in that sense. Israel. <laughs> yeah. But in the sense Paul was using it, he was using it ethnic, ethnically. So we're ethnic Gentiles. How did Christ accept us? He became our servant. Which is, there's also a lesson in that for us. We are to be servants to others, just as he was. And he served us by bestowing mercy on us. And the reason we needed mercy is because we could not plead for justice. We were guilty. We were undone. We had to sue for mercy. That was our only option left. And the only place to find mercy is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it was there that he atoned for our sin and propitiated the wrath of God and reconciled us to our Father and purchased this mercy for us. In fact, Romans 9 says that he made known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called not among Jews only, but also among Gentiles. So this mercy is a big deal with Paul. It's a huge deal that we would get mercy when we don't deserve it. When we have committed all kinds of 
terrible crimes and we show up before the judge and because he's just he ought to condemn us to hell for eternity but instead because of Christ he says mercy mercy I hold none of that against you there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for these Gentiles that received mercy how did their lives change well if you read verses 9 to 12 they were giving praise to God they were rejoicing in God and they were hoping in God and that's what I pray all of us do that we give praise to God that that's a natural outflow not on Sunday mornings from 10 to 10:45 only but I hope you find yourself singing to God throughout the week when you go to be the, with the Lord in prayer that's part of that is worship part of that's just singing and praising him and, and lifting up your voice to the Lord not only giving praise to God rejoicing in God is that true about us do we have an inner rejoicing even though sometimes circumstances are very difficult you can always go back to something that never changes and is always true and that's that Christ is in you the hope of glory Amen. and then do you have a hope in God has God granted birth that in you may he cause it to abound in you by the power of the Holy Spirit that the things that he's promised to the believer will not just be fiction pie in the sky you know like a, a fairy tale or a fable may it be reality because God has enabled you to, to put your trust and to, to know that the things that he has promised you will come to pass so hope in Christ feed the longing of your soul with an eager confident expectation of the greater things to come that he's promised to bless you with look forward to Jesus's return that's one of the promises the blessed hope of the return of our great God and Savior the Lord Jesus Christ in him shall the Gentiles hope I'm a Gentile you're a Gentile let's feed that hope that we have through the Word of God and through Jesus Christ the Son of God we do ask Lord that you would make the things that you have promised to us in your word more and more real that we could literally taste them and feel them because Lord you have you've taken them by your spirit and you have just made them real to our hearts and our souls Lord Jesus we thank you that you became a servant to the circumcision and to the uncircumcision and may we go and do likewise may we be servants of others we read here that you accepted us to the glory of God Lord help us to accept others to the glory of God not to erect any barriers even with Christians that are very different from us but Lord let us see Christ in them and accept them into our fellowship warmly and to love them freely let us take away Lord from this passage what your Holy Spirit desires us to take away from it we pray together all God's people said Amen